listener. Um, well, <laughs> as if I have any listeners now after all of that. Um, but to you, the listener whom I do not have, uh, my apologies for being so distracted just then, but I had a crazy person in front of me. And also, I had to navigate somewhere, so I had that woman talking, you know, my electronic woman, telling me where to go. Um, I actually pulled over and rang the police to warn them about this driver in front of me. I have never done anything like that in my life. I have never, I don't care about other drivers, you know. I usually ignore them entirely. I'm pretty sure I've never tooted my horn at anyone. My GD and I discussed this. Um, I, I just see other cars on the road, you know. I've never been cut off in my life. Now, um, in 500 meters, oh, turn left to merge onto M1 towards city. She's back, and I did not expect that. Uh, I tried to turn her off, actually. Um, end route. Okay. That's the end of all my routes there. Right, now, I hope so anyway. I'll find out in a minute. Now, um, now, um, some people get cut off when they're driving every day of their lives. You know, there are bad drivers every time they go out on the road. Um, people like me, I never get cut off, you know, because if someone swerves violently in front of me, I just, you know, you get that, you know, a little bit like when you're playing video games, you know, it's just an obstacle that you drive around, you know. Um, but this person before, uh, yeah, you know, oh, and whether there are a lot of bad drivers on the road or very few is, I think, a state of your own mind. You know, it's all about you. It's not about them. You know, um, we I think we often, and this is not just about driving cars, I think we often, um, uh, whatever our own state of mind is, we project that onto others, something like that. You're the psychologist, not me. I don't know anything psychology um right now what was i talking about oh yes uh i wanted to um start i, I was operating from a certain state of mind <laughs> see i just um, proved myself wrong uh, right i was operating from a certain um starting point in my mind and that starting point was um that um black and white that it is something that can't be ignored, that it's a huge deal in the world. So I start with that as a, let's say, a fact, all right? The black and white thing is a huge fact in the world. Now, whether I personally believe that to be the case or not is irrelevant, is what I'm arguing. Um, it's very relevant to a lot of people, so I'm going to make it relevant to me right now and see whether I, I make anything of that, see whether it holds water, see whether if I explore the world through a black and white lens, whether whether it all makes sense to me and that my friend AB, who does see everything through a black and white lens, um, whether he is just being a problem or whether he's actually got a point, okay? 
Okay, I, I, I think I know what I'm talking about, all right? So, you know, ordinarily in my real life, I would say, listen, if you talk about the whole black and white thing too much, you'll just make it worse, you know? So let's say you're a racist, let's say. And usually in the black and white thing in the modern age, it's white people racist against black people. And, you know, there's a whole power thing. Talk to a progressive as to why that is, you know? There's a whole other sort of section of people who say that if a black person is mean to a white person and a white person is black to a mean, uh, uh, what mean, if a black person is mean to a white person, that's the same as a white person being mean to a black person. It's equal racism, you know? But if you talk to a progressive thinker, that person will say, no, there's a power differential going on there and that matters, all right? Now, which side of the fence am I on in real life? I'm not telling you, you know, this is not about me, this podcast. I'm just saying there's that group of people there, there's that group of people here, and, um, you know, and those two sets of people I just mentioned then um, are both, for fun, let's say they're both Westerners, you know, Western non-progressives and Western progressives, let's say, all right? But I'm talking about someone else now who just, and I'm just starting from, there are two other types of people, the a person who, and both these types of people think the black and white is a huge deal, and it's all about the superiority complex that whites have over blacks. You know, the you know this whole whites superior over black thing. You know, gee, is that hard to hear? Stop talking about that, sporty. You're talking it up again. No, I'm just saying there are people who think like that, so I'm going to talk about that too. And the two people I've picked out are AB, who thinks that is a problem, and he's coming from a black person's perspective. He's not actually black, but he is black, uh, under a certain definition of black, which I will come to soon. And then there's Captain W.E. Johns, who's white, who's not actually white. You know, I've never met a white man, you know, um, in the you know who was properly white um, because that would look really odd that would have to be super albino all right um, when I put my a white dinner plate up next to my face I'm nowhere near that color you know I'm kind of a pinky brown I don't even know what color I am all right but I am coming from the perspective of AB who argues to, you know to someone like me that the black white thing is a huge deal and that I shouldn't stop him talking about it and then i've got captain we johns who also thinks that the black and white thing is a huge deal um and that i shouldn't ignore it the black and white thing is a big deal to these people now it's not a big deal to me in real life i couldn't care less if you're black and white unlike michael jackson it doesn't matter if you're black or white if you want to be my baby you know as he sings he was a freak that guy i don't like michael jackson I don't like the sound of him, you know. Yeah, nah, I'm not buying it. I'm not even buying that high-pitched voice. I reckon he's a huge fake. I reckon he's got a normalish sort of voice and he talks in that fake voice and he's a big fake. <laughs> That's what I, I, I don't like, Michael Jackson. Right, so, um, so AB, remember AB? He's a brown person who's actually black in his definition. And then... We've got Captain W.E. Johns, and he also thinks that A.B. is black, even though he's actually brown, right? On this much, A.B. and Captain W.E. Johns agree. All I will say right now 
is these two guys, AB and Captain W.E. Johns, would not get along. Okay, now I'm about to get petrol. Uh, back to this in a minute, um, as soon as I find the pause button. And here it is right there. And here's how I think it might have started, but there might be other angles that I'm not aware of. But as far as I can tell, it goes like this. Um, at one point in history, Europeans got a jump on the rest of the world in terms of technology and science and certain other things. You know, scientific philosophy, for example, you know, scientific style of philosophy. What they call the Enlightenment, you know. So, arising from the Renaissance and then the Enlightenment, um, Europeans got a jump on the rest of the world and there was science involved as well and there was technology now um, and that and that jump that they got on the rest of the world as far as I've been able to de to detect from reading histories from all over the world that jump was called modernism okay so I've been studying Egypt and Ethiopia, you know, in the late 18th century. By which I mean the 19th century. And they all call that thing which the Europeans did in getting that technological jump and that scientific jump and that philosophical jump. All these other places, not Europe, all these other places call it modernism, you know. And for example, you're getting Egypt um, and I'm thinking of um, Ismail, Ishmael the Magnificent, you know, who was a, an, an Egyptian... Um, I, you know, I won't get into the politics, but you know, there was an Ottoman Empire, and then there was an Egyptian leader, you know, and Egypt started, started to get really rich and fairly independent of the Ottoman Empire in a way, um, and there was a, a guy that I focused on for a while called Ishmael the Magnificent, and his grandfather was Muhammad Ali, <laughs> and, um, but... You know, you had situations arising like um, the Ottoman, you know, uh, over in um, Persia, as you might call it, over in um, Constant, over in Istanbul, over in you know Constantinople, you would have um, the um, the boss. Do you know what I can't remember? Sorry, I can't remember all the terminology. The Sultan, the Sultan borrowing money from France. You know, and putting up Egypt as collateral, you know, because Egypt was part of the Ottoman Empire. But then you would get, this is wonderful, geopolitics can be wonderful, but then you would get the um, boss of Egypt, Ishmael the Magnificent, I'm trying to think of the, what he's called, Pash, Pashwa, Pasha, Pasha. The Kedive, that's what he's called, uh, you know, 
poor me. I can never think of things straight up. Um, I, I, I run down the corridors of my mind and the answers are always in broom closets, you know, and I'm banging on every door trying to find the answers. And finally, yep, it comes. Oh, oh, too late. <laughs> All right, back to the story. But he would borrow money from England, also putting up Egypt as collateral. Now that's interesting. You know, he would take it out an independent loan. So now, both England and France have lent money to two parts of the Ottoman Empire, and Egypt is collateral for both. You can see how that's a problem. When England and France are enemies, <laughs> and then you throw a Su Suez Canal right in the middle of all that, and boy, you've got, um, you've got a recipe for conflict. Um, this is all way before World War One. But can you see how geopolitics can actually go mental when no one's really done anything wrong here? Have they or haven't they? You know what I mean? Can you see what's going on there? Um, and people say if everybody could just love... I've digressed here, but I've digressed here in a way that amuses me, so I'm going to keep it going. Look what's happened here. And um, people say, oh, why do wars start? If only everybody would love each other. You know, if, any, if everybody loved each other, then the world could be a better place, you know. But here you have the Ottoman Empire borrowing money from France, which ostensibly is not a bad thing. And then putting up Egypt as collateral, collateral, which is ostensibly not such a bad thing. You know, we all take out loans, we take out mortgages and all that sort of stuff. Okay, I can see that. And, um, but then you get Egypt who, um, for really good reasons, feels like they are fairly independent of the Ottoman Empire, that they're a special case within the Ottoman Empire. And, um, that they really shouldn't have to feel like just possessed by the Ottoman Empire, um, by Constantinople, and um, Egypt says we will we want to borrow some money too, you know, um, and they borrow money from England, which ostensibly is not a bad thing to do, is it? Um, and and they put their own wealth up as collateral even though the Ottoman Empire has also done that, put up Egypt's wealth as collateral. And then, you know, Egypt, uh, sorry, France and England are not getting along. Let's just put, park that for a minute. The reasons for that go back a long way away, a long time before that. But that's not really what I'm getting at. What I'm getting at is you've got a recipe for a world war right there. Now, that alone will not cause a world war. However, multiply that by about 16 different other situations like that, and, you know, all over Europe and all that sort of stuff, you know, involving Germany as well and all that sort of thing. You put all those situations together, and suddenly, World War I explodes. And then you've got some people in the modern era saying, if everybody could have loved each other a little more, World War I would not have happened. You know, and one might say rubbish. One might say rubbish. You know, uh, 
some bit, I think Blackadder in the comedy series. Um, I forget who said it and where I heard it, but World, well, I'm sure it was Blackadder. You know, Ben Elton writes those, I think. And um, World War One started because nobody knew how not to have that war. You know, and um, there's some truth in that. So now I remember Harry and Meghan's wedding. And I'm talking Prince Harry. Um, and I'm talking the film star, Megan uh, Markle. Markle. Markle Arkle. Right. Now, that's an interesting thing. Harry and Megan's wedding. They had a bishop there. And Harry and Megan are, I don't think it can be denied, are from what the French used to call the second estate. You know, the nobility, all right? They're the noble class. Wealthy, all the rest of it, okay? Um, now, I have argued in a previous episode that the nobility, you know, would like all that wealth, but would also like to feel sort of good about having all that wealth too, and not bad about having all that wealth, you know? And to a very large extent, I think modern um, uh, establishment, Clintonite, you know, what some people call left-wing elites want that too. And the people I'm thinking about there are people like um, the Obamas, um, the Clintons, um, Meryl Streep, Paul McCartney always come into my mind, those two guys. Uh, and, the, and Beyonce and Jay-Z, you know, who I know is Jay-Z, but I just can't bring myself to say Z, so I just say Z, even though it's stupid. His name is Jay-Z, um, and I shouldn't be saying Jay-Z, but I just say Jay-Z. You know, even when I sing that nursery, that Sesame Street song, I always finish off with Z, even though it doesn't rhyme. Okay, um, because I just refuse, you know. But anyway, now here's an interesting thing. Harry and Megan are sitting there, and they should be really, really embarrassed, probably, about being so wealthy. So what, what could exist to make them feel good about themselves, even though they're rich and they move around in that same, I think they move in the same circles as those elites like Meryl Streep and all that sort of thing. I think Harry and Megan are a celebrity royals. Is that fair, a fair call? And I know they're good people and Harry's lovely and all that sort of stuff, but I think they move in the same circles. I think they're the same set, you know. It's a whole rich elite, rich elite, right? Let's just leave it at that. Now, how the hell can they feel good about that? Well, here's how the hell they can feel good about that. They get the priests to make them feel good about that, right? And um, so they have this bishop at their wedding. I forget his name, but he reminded me of, and I'm going to forget his name too. Now there was a Bishop Desmond Tutu, you know, in South Africa. Uh, I think he was a friend of Mandela's, you know. And these are the people who say, all you've got to do is love. If you love each other, you know. Um, then everything will be all right. You've got to love. So the whole world loves each other. Everything will work out. That's all that's missing. All right? 
So, if there is ills in the world, is there evil in the world, it's because people didn't love each other. Now, think about this. Um, Megan and Harry are there, and of course you want that message at a wedding. I've got no problem with that. But he was definitely that bishop saying that that's a world order. There could be a world order built on love. Okay? Now, um, so... Harry and Megan are sitting there, and all the, the whole church is full of absolutely rich people. The rich elite of the rich elite of the world, you know. That whole establishment is right in there. That, and, you know, and probably there's an anarchist outside with a bomb wishing he could just throw it in there. And probably there's, a, um, there's an, there's an anti-establishment out there too, and a socialist too. And if only they could lob a bomb into that church, they could blow the whole lot to sky high. Oh my God, wouldn't that be fantastic? They're probably thinking, you know. But the point is, they didn't do that. They might have had a, a policeman standing guard at the front door, for all I know, but it didn't happen. Right, now, um, so then, if I was Harry and Megan, and gee, they were smiling every time that guy said, if only everybody loved each other, the whole world could be a beautiful place. Because that allows them to feel, aha, there are poor people in the world and all that sort of stuff. Um, there's inequity and, you know, and here we, and he was African-American too, this bishop. Um, and Meghan Markle is African-American too, you know, um, and Harry's there. And this really works, you know. Everyone in that church would have walked out of that church thinking, you know what, that's all that's wrong. It's because people aren't loving each other. It's not because the world economy is rigged. It's not because of that, you know. It's not because the world economy is rigged in a colonial racist way. It's not because of that. It's because a lack of love. And they can all walk out of that church saying, well, I'm filled with love right now after that wedding. Um, Harry and Megan are filled with love for each other. Look at them. Um, and, you know, you could be as rich as you want in, you know, super rich, you know, the super wealthy. You know, maybe Beyonce was at that wedding. I have no idea. Maybe Jay said was too. You know, maybe Paul McCartney was. Um, they can walk out and say, you know what, world? It's not to do with whether we're super wealthy or not. Um, it's to do with whether you are all loving each other. Now, we are filled with love. I am filled with love for everyone in humankind. So it's not my fault. It's got nothing to do with my super wealth. It's got nothing to do with that at all. It's through because of a lack of love in the world. And right now in this church, we are filled with love. Okay? And that's a wonderful sort of... Um, a sort of... Um, uh, where, in a symbiotic way, the priest class and the nobility class can look after each other. You know, because Harry and Megan were essentially paying that bishop. I don't, probably not in money, but gee, no. People get paid in many ways. But in general, in history, the priest class has been kept fat and famous and healthy by the nobility class. And the priest class gives the nobility class legitimacy um, by saying that we confirm that God um, approves of the nobility. All right, God approves of the nobility. I hereby 
you know, 100% um, tell you that you must feel comfortable about the nobility because I love the nobility. And essentially, the nobility then slips the priest a check and says thank you for your kind words, you know, making this such a beautiful wedding, you know, and that's the way it works. And meanwhile, the, the poor stay poor and the peasants stay peasants. It's a beautiful setup, you know. Um, I'm not really complaining about that, you know why? Because I'm not actually poor, I'm okay. So I'm fine, thanks. So I'm not actually complaining. Um, I'm, I'm in a strange sort of situation because I'm actually okay. Um, so I'm not complaining. In fact, I'd rather be me than a royal, and I really would. I've, I've got wonderful freedoms. I've got freedoms to be even doing this podcast. You know, there is no way that Harry could be making a podcast like this. He has not got that freedom. I've got this wonderful freedom. And here am I driving around the city right now. And, uh, you know, nobody, I've got no paparazzi chasing me. You know, I'm in, I'm in really good shape. So I'm not complaining about these super elites. Because somehow the world economy is rigged such that I get to have a really great life anyway. Stop the press. I'll, I'll just jump in there because I've left the Khedive, Ishmael the Magnificent, and the Sultan um, back a little bit in this episode. But it, um, there is something about uh, all of that that I just want to make a quick comment about, you know, by way of digression. I like my digressions, so I'll keep doing them. And then I'll jump back to what I was talking about in this episode as a whole. Uh, so a long road black, back to black and white, you know, which is what this episode is trying to be about, black and white, you know. Um, all right, this episode is trying to see everything in a through a black and white filter, you know, but I keep getting digressed. But um, just about that business of... You know, what, you know, in the lead up to World War One, uh, and the way that the Ottoman Empire uh, took massive loans out from from France, and the way that Egypt took massive loans out from um, England. Um, now, when you take a loan out, you know. Um, from a bank, let's say, putting aside for a minute, and I know it's a valid point, but putting aside that the banks might have got rich through evil means anyway, so there is that element, you know, but still, for you to walk into a bank, at the moment that you walk into that bank, you are in a submissive sort of attitude, um, in as much as you are, you know, you're you you definitely aren't aggressive usually you know towards the bank you know you're saying oh i want to fill out this application and yes i no no i'm 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 a good worker and all that sort of stuff yes i can service the loan i'll do anything you say you know and you're in a submissive attitude um and to a certain extent you know i suppose if the ottoman empire is taking out a loan from france and egypt is taking out a loan from england yeah you know, they're they're kind of asking for that, you know. They're they're putting themselves 
in a submissive position. They're giving away their sovereignty. They're putting themselves at risk, all that sort of thing. Now, we know that England and France, by this time in the late 19th century, have got a lot of their wealth through illegitimate, you know, what you might call illegitimate means. The same illegitimate means that, you know, all nations had been using forever. Yeah. And I'm talking Egypt, and I'm talking the Ottoman Empire, and I'm talking African countries, and all that sort of stuff. You know, we're all a bunch of thieves going back in history. But England and France, for example, managed to do a lot of thieving because they got an inter they got a um, uh, a jump. They got a technology. They got a scientific and technological jump on the rest of the world. So they got to act out their evil a little more than normal, a lot more than normal. But they did get rich. You know, the industrial revolution and all that sort of stuff did increase wealth. But then they used that wealth to get even more wealth. But putting all that aside for a minute, um, you know, if you want to call them evil, you have to uh, for getting wealthy in that way and stripping resources out of other lands. Then which land on earth is not evil? in a sense, you know, or maybe Indigenous Australia, okay? But which country has had the opportunity to strip resources out of other countries and has decided not to, you know, in history? You know, and I'm talking like the Assyrians or the Egyptians or whoever you want to talk about, you know, um, who hasn't done that, you know? Um, and if someone was better at it than anyone else, do we say that they're more evil? You know, and that's, you know, I'm not going to come up with an answer for that. But is England more evil than, um, what, a country like Ethiopia, who was, which was once a great empire, the Aksumite sort of empire? Um, is England more evil than Ethiopia, uh, constitutionally and fundamentally, uh, because it did a better job of, um, of you know, going to the four corners of the globe and the sun never sets and all that business. All right, I'll just put all that aside. But just at that moment when the Ottoman Empire is borrowing money from France and um, the other joint, Egypt, is borrowing money from England, at that point in time, if they can't service that loan, they're almost voluntarily putting themselves in a uh, weakened position. They're almost saying... Please come and um, bully us another way, you know. Is that true or not? Now, I only mention this. Now, this is no excuse for colonialism, right? Because that's what I'm getting at and I'm getting, into, I'm, I'm getting towards. Um, now, as it turns out, England ended up... Oh, look, they didn't quite colonise Egypt, England... Uh, but they were calling, they eventually ended up calling the shots, you know, because Egypt fell in a hole. A little part of that was actually because Egypt, um, in, you know, uh, Ishmael the Magnificent himself, you know, in his eagerness to be Ishmael the Magnificent, you know, to be magnificent and, you know, to get Egypt up to its, into a glorious position and himself into a glorious position, just like his grandfather, his father didn't quite cut it, you know, poor Muhammad Ali, uh, Ishmael the Magnificent's grandfather, he had a, it's always the way, it's often the way, you know, you have a son and you go, oh my God, I'm about to die now, my son's useless, uh, but luckily, often the grandson is fine, yeah, or the 
granddaughter <laughs> or the nephew, you know. So often you get um, a, a great leader, you know, the father of modern Egypt, you know, such as, and that's what Muhammad Ali was, um, you know, followed by a pretty useless son and then a great grandson. Not a great grandson, but not a great grandson, a really great, you know, a really magnificent grandson, like Ishmael the Magnificent, all right? Anyway, so Ishmael the Magnificent was trying to do some major things. I, I, I get confused, you know, the whole Suez Canal was a huge deal um, and because it was going to open up the Indian Ocean. You know, it's, it's, it's much shorter to go through there. Um, and people have been having that dream forever. I think the ancient Romans have been having a dream of cutting canals, you know, from the Mediterranean across into the Indian Ocean. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I think, uh, you know, it had been a dream for a long time. I think Napoleon had had that thought, you know. But anyway, here they were in the late 19th century. It looked like it might happen. I think Ishmael was in the thick of all that. And, you know, and... Um, huge loans were taken out and everybody had their eye on the Suez Canal, you know, because that was going to make the difference. Boy, it's a long way around Africa to go to places like Australia and India. Um, and, um, you know, the East India Con uh, Company, you know, used to go right round. Did they go over land and put a boat across there as well? But anyway, the point is, um, if you wanted to go to here, Australia, from the Mediterranean, oh, just it's a massive thing just to make a shortcut through the Suez Canal, you know, and not have to go right around Africa <laughs> and down below South Africa, um, near South Africa, you know. Um, anyway, the Suez Canal is a big deal. Ishmael the Magnificent takes out huge loans, and at that point in time, um, you know, if and when things go bad and you can't service that loan, it's a little bit like when you take out a mortgage and you can't pay the mortgage, the bank comes and takes your house. And sells it from out, out from under you. And the Ottoman Empire is in the same sort of problem, you know, by taking out huge loans with France and all that sort of thing. You put yourself into that position almost willingly. Now you can be sort of forced into that position. But I don't want to excuse colonialism. All I want to say in saying all of this is a lot of people just put it about that um, Europeans casually trotted around the world colonising places through sheer and simple um, empire-building um, uh, instincts, you know. And, you know, people say that about Australia. You know, they say the English came to Australia because they were in a casual mood for empire-building. You know, and absolute, they were in a smashing mood and they just wanted to smash black people, you know, because we do want this episode to be a lot about black and white. Um, but it wasn't quite like that, you know. With Australia, for example, um, it was, as I've mentioned, a case of England had no real wish to come to Australia and no real intention, and they got into a war with America um, and lost America, you know, England lost America and suddenly had nowhere to send their convicts to. They had previously been sending their convicts to America. And also, you know, in the early years of the colonies of Australia, you know, um, we also had the Napoleonic Wars and everything. And England was having a real, you know, there was a very good chance that England wasn't going to last as long as the Indigenous Australians. You know, you sort of kind of get this feeling 
when you, um, if you only casually read history, that England was a superpower and poor old Indigenous Australia were just sitting there. But there was a real odds-on chance, you know, if, Napo if things had gone a little bit differently for Napoleon, uh, there was a real odds-on chance that um, Indigenous Australia would have outlasted England. You know, I, if I was a betting man at the time, I, you know, and just before the Battle of Waterloo, for example, and I, I had to put a hundred bucks somewhere, um, I would have said that um, I'm going to bet that England is going to be snuffed out of existence. Now, this sounds really strange for an empire, you know, that is all around the world, you know. It wasn't quite all around the world yet. That was still to come, some of that. Um, but it was still a pretty powerful nation. But, you know, it was having an existential crisis, you know. And England comes to Australia in that spirit, you know. And I'm talking 100 years before Ishmael the Magnificent here. All right. So, um, but anyway, fast forward to, um, uh, you know, the late 19th century, um, rather than the early 19th century, Napoleon and all that. Um, and, yeah, it's not so much to um, excuse colonialism, it's just to m m uh, make messy, mess up the idea that a lot of people have got in their heads that um, Europeans were just, you know high and mighty conquistadors just marching everywhere for the hell of it because they were just in a, a conquering mood, you know. They weren't in that Julius Caesar sort of mind, you know. They were panicking a lot of the time, you know, and all that sort of thing. And, you know, it's a bit messy, the whole Egypt thing, for example. England ended up pulling the strings in Egypt, you know, after things went bad for Egypt, you know. And the Ottoman Empire just collapsed, you know, right at the start of World War One because, you know, it had got itself into debt and there were other problems too. Um, it was a house of cards. The Ottoman Empire was just a, a very fragile, huge but fragile house of cards. You know, you know when Australia, you know, something to sort of think about, you know, with Turkey and Australia, you know, the you know, what we call the famous battle at Gallipoli, which, you know, was the Allies versus the Axis powers, you know. And Australia was only one of the armies there. England was there too, and um, all that, and New Zealand and all that. But anyway, um, and others, I think there were Indians there and Canadians, or whoever was there. Right. Um, but the Ottoman Empire, by the time it collapsed and started to be dominated by, you know, and huge chunks of it started to be dominated by European powers. Um, it had been a house of cards anyway, uh, because, it, you know, empires get to the end of their lifespan um, and start borrowing money, in the case of the Ottoman Empire, and Egypt borrowed lots of money, ended up kind of losing the Suez Canal to the English and all that sort of stuff, you know, and... Um, and Palestine ended up in England's hands, didn't it? Um, I'm not sure on all the geopolitics how that all sort of, you know, there was a war involved as well. But, you know, the mechanisms via which England came to pull the strings in Egypt, you know, um, and pretty much um, start ordering the hierarchy, the Egyptian hierarchy around. Now, the Ishmael the Magnificent and Muhammad Ali and all those sorts of people, by the way, they were kind of Albanians. They weren't even Egyptians. You know, Egypt is a, is a 
funny, funny thing, you know. Um, sometimes foreign, they, the Egyptians themselves end up being ruled by foreigners, you know. Now, you know, at this point in history, Albanians are sitting on the throne, shall we say, you know. And, um, and at other times, Alexander the Great was, you know. Um, and the Greeks, you know, were very powerful from the time of Alexander the Great all the way through to Cleopatra. And then after that, you know, the Romans, and the Romans even before Cleopatra, you know, so there's a kind of handover thing there. Um, so there's all these different times, and that was long periods of time, you know. And and then, you know, and meanwhile the Egyptians are relegated to second-hand, you know, second-class citizens in their own country. You know, so you get these times, you know, you've got an Albanian there, and then on another occasion you've got... Um, as I say, Alexander the Great, you know, many centuries, many, well, a couple of millennia before. And, you know, other times you've got the Romans all-powerful in there, sitting on the throne, if you like. And, you know, Alexander the Great was pharaoh, and Ishmael the Magnificent was kind of a pharaoh, you know, um, in his own way, and all that sort of thing. And there was even times in ancient, ancient history when, you know, what we call black people sat on the throne for a short period of time and relegated the Egyptians to second-class citizens. And, um, and the only funny thing about that period when the, uh, let's call the um, Kush people or whoever they were, um, not sure which group they were, uh, came up and sat on the throne for a while in the same way that Alexander the Great did and the Romans did, you know, much later, and in the same way that Ish, you know, the Alba, those Albanians, Muhammad Ali and his son and his grandson, you know, sat on the throne for a while, you know, and, the, and relegated to the um, Egyptians themselves to second-class citizens. Um, you know, the funny thing about rap music these days, and I've heard some of it via my GD, is that they get the highlighter pen in, out and they put a circle around that that short period. Now, I know it was a long time. It was a whole dynasty, I believe. But still, there's lots of dynasties in Egypt and most of those dynasties were Egyptians, you know, not Africans. Um, and, you know, uh, I'm just going to, yeah. You can define Africa any way you want. Um, right. But, the, you know, like rappers in America put a circle around that little moment um, in the context of the huge history of Egypt. Um, and I'm talking all the way through to the present day. When um, the um, where Kush people did sit on the Egyptian throne. They came up from south, from the south, and... Uh, overcame the Egyptians. So they weren't the same people as the Egyptians. They became the Egyptians' overlords. But rappers these days say, uh, claim all of Egypt's history, and I mentioned this before, I like mentioning this one over and over, because those rap songs, some of those rap songs do your head in, you know, when, um, when the rappers seem to be claiming all of Egypt's glories, throughout, you know, all of Egypt's history, and they find a few statues um, that, you know, oh, don't worry, I, I discussed all that. But anyway, look, you know where I was going with all of that. Um, I got interrupted by a phone call. And, uh, but where I'm going with all that is not to excuse colonialism, but to just put a wrinkle in the idea that colonialism was casual empire building. 
It's much more complex than that. And, you know, it's probably too much of a stretch to say that Egypt asked for it when they ended up having their strings pulled by England. Um, and it's too much of a stretch to say that the Ottoman Empire asked for it when they collapsed. But then, did the Roman Empire ask for it when they collapsed? You know, a lot of people say, yes, they did. You know, well, they had a few, there was a lot of things that went into the fall of the Roman Empire, in the West at least, you know, there was plague and there's all sorts of things. But the point is, you can make yourself strong enough so that that doesn't happen. And Rome ended up just going out with a whimper, not a bang, in the Roman Western, you know, the Western Ro Roman Western Empire. Um, and, you know, the Ottoman Empire fell and part, you know, the Ottoman Empire was, car Empire was carved up and Europeans ended up, what you might call, colonising a lot of that. You know, um, but to what extent does a country ask for it? Now, that's a horrible thing to say, I know. Um, but, you know, in ancient history, if you were defeated by another mob, that was, you know, and I'm talking in ancient history. I know everybody, you know, doesn't think like that these days. But in ancient history, you know, if the Romans got defeated, all right, I'll just use the Romans. If and when the Romans ever got defeated, they never blamed the defeating party. Uh, the Romans always blamed themselves. Now, it was an attitude the Romans had, you know. And not only that, they put their noses, yeah, you know, they, they 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 put their minds to it, and they said, "We're gonna get, we're gonna, we're not gonna actually, we're gonna smash them anyway." And the Romans would come back and destroy who the, whoever conquered them, you know. Whoever won a battle against Rome was in a lot of trouble. So if you had an analogy like that with, um, uh, you know, and this is a really contentious issue, but I'm just telling you the way Rome thought, you know, uh, but there's a lot of Africans these days that just spend their whole time um, saying, um, and I'm not moralizing this, I'm just saying what Rome, how Rome used to think. A lot of Africans just go the full on, England and all that, Europe was a bastard because they came and enslaved us and smashed us and, you know, it wasn't fair, you know. They were bastards. Well, yes, they were bastards, you know. Um, but if the people who make those rap songs, for example, where I hear this sort of stuff, if they were Romans, they wouldn't be talking like that. They would be talking revenge. Oh, yeah, those rap songs often are, aren't they? <laughs> You know, but I don't think the Romans were victims per se, but that's a whole issue in itself. But and and I just wanted to mess up in this whole chat just now the automatic assumption by many that you know places like England were ended up pulling the strings in places like Egypt through sheer bloody minded conquering. You know, there was an element of and I know it was Albanians sitting on the throne doing this, but it's co more complicated than that. I just want to mess up that idea. I like my history messy. If you've got a neat and tidy idea that, you know, European powers um, casually went around the world a conquering and being absolute bastards, I just want to mess that up a little bit to say sometimes it's a little bit more complex than that. There's a lot going on and we'll get to that another time. And that's none of that is to excuse colonialism, you know, and I don't excuse all the colonial powers in the ancient 
world either, including bloody Ethiopia, who had their Aksumite empire and on one occasion, for example, um, burnt Khartoum to the ground, back to the, you know, back to its foundations, absolutely obliterated the Sudanese, as we call it now, um, city of Khartoum, um, you know, the Ethiopians marched over there and destroyed that joint, you know, and then, you know, um, certain African countries get that done to them and they say what terrible people the Europeans are. Um, and Africans often, you know, they take a lot of inspiration from Ethiopia. Ethiopia. Um, heaps of African countries and even Jamaica have copied the colour scheme of Ethiopia's flag because they admire Ethiopia. Because Ethiopia used to do the sorts of things, you know, had that attitude that England's got, you know. And, and they even resisted colonisation, you know. So they're an inspiration, Ethiopia, for their glorious history, you know. And that sort of thing. All right. I just that I just wanted to mess everything up there. Uh, back to hopefully what I was talking about, and God knows where this cuts back in on this episode. But you know, I'll just go back to what I was talking about earlier. Back to that. I think I enjoy doing that more than anything, taking something simple and making it messy. It makes me feel like I'm the opposite of social media, which likes to take something messy and say, look, this is simple, and here it is, in the form of a meme. I do the opposite. I like to take a meme and mess it up. The podcast you just heard was made using Anchor. Ever thought about making your own podcast? Anchor makes it really easy for anyone to get started. It's a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, and distributing podcasts. Best of all, it's 100% free. Sign up now at anchor.fm slash new. That's anchor.fm slash new to get started.